Hello and welcome to Power Reflections, a proud member of the Doof Network where we reflect on Wabo's most trim work as it releases. I'm Ruben Morehouse. And I'm Elliot Diebel. And we are back to talk about Cutting Class 6.Z uh, and then we jump into the new arc. We have gone ahead 7.1 and no bonus material this week because it's Christmas, why not? Um, <laughs> before we get into that though, quick reminder, we're running a fan art contest currently. The theme is The Power of the Holidays and you have until the 4th of January to get your submissions in. Just yes. under a month. So send us your holiday-themed Wild Bow fan art uh, by the 4th. Yeah. Um, let's dive into it, shall we? Cutting class 6.Z, we are in an interlude, we are in a new character's head, uh, and it's Fernanda. Um, interesting. Did you pick Fernanda as, a, as an interlude character? I, I mean, no, no. I was, you picked, I, what, Sig, and I picked no, Alexander, I, was, I think. I was with the brownies. Oh, that's right. I, you were keen on brownie interlude. Which, you know... Technically, could have been brownies watching Fernanda the whole time. You don't Yes. Know. I mean, for all you know, it could be the brownies watching everyone for this entire story the whole time. <laughs> this whole thing was a brownie POV. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're in Fernanda's head. Uh, we are back before the, the everything went down at the school. We're kind of watching it happening. Um, we've dived into Fernanda's head as Chase comes to check in on her before a big meeting with Alex and the other Belanger's. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, so it's, it's like, an interesting one. Yeah, well, so, so it's like Saturday afternoon, which is like a, a day or so into Lucy's three-day yes. uh, hiatus from the world. Yeah, um, so obviously we knew we were going to jump back. I, I think we all kind of knew we were going to jump back and see how everything went down, and we see, I think, the main blow that is dealt, which is the uh, mm. the uh, Belanger apprentices. But um, let's start by talking about Fernando a bit. Uh, yeah, she's uh, an interesting little thirteen-year-old, isn't she? <laughs> I my first and second read of this chapter were just so different because I think for the first one I kept trying to make myself believe that like there was a, a human being underneath. <laughs> it was really the, the second type through. I think I'd lost that hope, and I just really was hit by how calculating Fernanda is. Uh, <laughs> And I think the chapter does a really, really good job of introducing us to this right at the start. Like, everything Fernanda does is so calculated. Like, the way she holds herself, she, like, I think she bounces, like, tactically when Chase calls her. Um, she opens the conversation in just, you know, a, a, a very normal sibling way to do, which is asking if their parents are still alive. You know, she's concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very concerned. I want to read this quote because I put it out as well. Um, the, basically, the first thing she says when she sees Chase is, did our father die? She asked. Hmm? No. Mum, then? Um, which is just, I mean, it immediately sets up the dynamic between these two siblings, right? It, it's so, <laughs> so unfamiliar. Well, and not just that, it sets up the whole family as well, because there's no emotion behind asking if her parents have died either. Like, she just, like, she, you know, it's just that's the only thing that she could think of that would be big enough that he would bother doing this. Yeah, it's so it's such a sign that, like, they just don't interact because this is the only reason for them to be interacting as a dead parent. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, we're diving straight into a practitioner point of view. Uh. So we, we really open with this reminder that, hey, these people and their family dynamics are fucked. Yep. Um, I, I mean, like, Fernanda as a point of view choice, I think, is really, really interesting because she's such an interesting comparison to the Kenneteers. Like, obviously, you know, she's, like, the same age as them. 
Um, so she's sort of ripe for comparisons against them. Um, but I I mean, I guess she's kind of this weird or or antithesis of Lucy in that she's suffered like all of this sort of, um, I don't know, like oppression at the hands of this system and has just turned it completely in and, and like sociopathically selfishly sort of started manipulating everyone around her as opposed to like Lucy who just challenges when people are being shitty fernanda just sort of projects that back out onto the world yeah um yeah i love your point that that fernanda is kind of a reflection of the characters because you're right I, I hadn't really connected it but it's it's another example of a 13 year old in this story who is forced by the horrific situations around them to to be a lot more mature and i think that's a really fun uh, beat to set up Fernanda as presumably someone who's going to be on the other side to our our Kenneteers, as we'll find out over the course of this chapter and the next one. Um, yeah, just setting up more kind of uh, I guess pale reflections of, is the term for them um, <laughs> that we can use to to dive in and, and explore these dynamics a bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially because I, I don't know. Maybe we'll get to this at the end of the chapter. But like, I'm I'm curious to hear people's thoughts on how much are they rooting for Fernanda by the end of the chapter. Mm. yeah yeah interesting um yeah I, I think the other thing to touch on here is just the relationship between chase and fernanda which is just so cold um mm. and a bit that's fernanda's fault but clearly you know chase is trying to bridge the gap a bit in this first conversation and it's clear that this has just so not been the norm like the norm for them has just been complete uh, almost indifference right um yeah yeah just uh cold yeah cold's the right word for it they're basically estranged from the sounds of it or barely acquaintances um i love the twist that we're going to get to that sort of recontextualizes chase's like attempts to rekindle some sort of regular relationship with fernanda um but it, it's i i guess we'll keep getting into it but it, it's just like fernanda's just having none of it mm. and i can't blame her for that Mm, yeah um yeah i guess we'll get into that more as this conversation continues uh because fernanda and chase continue to chit chat and, and kind of catch up uh, as best as they can i guess um and fernanda tells chase what she's been up to and kind of reminds him how uh privileged he is in comparison to her in their family yeah yeah um i mean like again we've sort of talked about how distant they are but like it, this segment really hammers home just how little Chase knows about Fernanda. Um, and like, there's all this stuff like she, she kind of begrudgingly admits that she's proud of him and it like disgusts her mm. to think of this. And I remember like, again, the first time I read this, I thought there was like this undercurrent of, Oh, she's so used to faking emotions. She doesn't realize she has, you know, genuine sibling love for Chase. Mm. And then um, by the end of the chapter, I realized that was not, the correct read (laughs) yeah it's not it's weird it's kind of halfway between having a moment of affection and not like her reaction to everything like this is to uh, she she almost has these stabs of regular emotion but you can tell they're just they're not quite getting the last mile to turning into any actual emotion right i see i don't even know if she is coming close like i think she Mm. With Chase specifically, I think Layla's right. maybe a different story, and, and yeah. we will get there. But I think with Chase, she's just genuinely disgusted by him and their family, and and do- doesn't feel anything for them. 
and I can't really blame her. Um, like, you know, the whole framing of, of all this stuff around her and, and her relationship with the family is her as an asset. Um, mm. And it's like the only kind words she's ever gotten from her father that she can remember is him saying she would be a valuable asset for the family. Yes. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's like you can see, I, and I think this is what I love about Wabo interludes, is like she's sort of turned out to be a bit of a monster. But I can see how she got there, and I really struggle to blame her for it. Yeah, um, you can't blame her at all, can you? Right? Like we get these bits about um, how she's obsessed with. Uh, I think it's Louisa, who's one of her cousins, who basically didn't prove herself enough to the family, and then was just married off uh, as a result of that. And so Fernanda's entire life is is kind of a bid to prove herself that she can be an independent, powerful asset to the family essentially so that she doesn't have to be put into this situation of uh being married off as the kind of you know fallback plan for them yeah which is it's just obviously so incredibly fucked up and you know we we we've criticized practitioners a lot for how terribly they treat others like objects and stuff but i guess credit where it's due they're equal opportunity terrible people because they're doing it to their own hmm yeah, um, maybe they're great parents as well because we we get a bit where uh, Fernanda's dad gives her a unicorn ride, which is great. Um, <laughs> so yeah, maybe they're great. Maybe they're good parents, and we don't know. <laughs> I mean, that is a pretty kick-ass reward for like a four-year-old <laughs> to get a unicorn ride. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, she got it for being emotionally manipulative. So not great parenting, but mm. uh, I suppose in Fernanda's case, you'll take what you can get. Yeah, yeah, not maybe not great parenting, but also it's a unicorn, so I think it's fine. Um, yeah, I I think it's funny as well. Like Fernanda talks about how you know her her whole thing is kind of emotional manipulation. Specifically, she she sort of picks targets and wins them over, and everyone else kind of hates her for it. But you know, it works for her, and it just it just sort of recontextualizes a bit how she was introduced as like you know she was like the loud spoiled brat in mm. i think it was like late arc four where she was first introduced mm. and at least partially it was like a mask she was wearing because she's actually a much more cold evil person than she came across as in those chapters yeah which again i guess raises the question why is it that seeming like a popular queen bee type is the benefit to her with the Kennedys? <laughs> what do you mean well, you know, we saw her. So when we first saw her, she was being this popular queen bee type, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And through the course of this chapter, we learn that she puts on these different mannerisms based on what she thinks will be advantageous to her. So why was that the mannerism that she thought would be advantageous to her with the Kenneteers? Or was it just that that's what she was, it, that's the mode she was in when she was around other people and the Kenneteers just kind of stumbled across it? I don't know. Yeah, um, I think that's just the mode she leans into in the school. Mm. And like she talks about substitute teacher shit stirring, which is kind of what uh, Grobard was at the yes, time. Yes, yes. So I, I, I think the Canateers probably just didn't factor into the decision to be that character at the time. Yep. Uh, maybe that's right. Um, also, it, she is, again, only 13, so she's not yet at that stage of being a maniacal, devious mastermind. <laughs> No, but she's she's doing her darndest to get there. She's like... definitely doing <laughs> solid, but she's not yet. I get the sense she's not yet there. 
I mean, I guess I look at anyone who's 13 as somewhat redeemable because mm. you're still about to go through like the back half of your most formative part of your life. So it's like there's still time to turn it around. Mm. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the other interesting thing I, I quickly want to talk about before we get further into a conversation with Chase is Fernanda's practice or almost lack thereof. Mm. Like she doesn't actually. I, and I think this ties into her sort of position in the family. She doesn't actually really get to do any magic in this chapter. Mm. Like she, I'm kind of confused as to what her practice looks like. She, at best, uses her sight to discern some basic connections to, like, throw some clothes in the water, um, which kind of feels like practitioner 101-ing. Like, I don't... Yeah. It, it's interesting how she's actually kind of built up this whole emotional manipulation shtick kind of just through mundane like social manipulation there doesn't actually seem to be magical stuff going on yeah you're right we don't get a clear picture on what her magic actively actually looks like right i mean to the best we can guess it's just her using her magic to augment her kind of natural ability to sense you know weaknesses and pressure points and play into relationships right Um, but we don't really see her do any magic which i think is very interesting yeah, well, she asks Layla for essentially basic practice lessons. Mm. So I, I, I almost get the impression that she's been awakened by her family, sort of obligatory style, and they haven't yeah. actually given her any tools or anything apart from sending her to this school, um, which she maybe only got in because Chase did. Uh, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I actually kind of almost feel like she probably doesn't really have any practice, and it's kind of more impressive and scary that really she's been labeled as like an emotionally manipulative practitioner just solely based on her like raw social manipulation skills mm. like she hasn't even got magic in there yet mm. yeah you're right i i wonder what she could turn into with magic then <laughs> yeah probably pretty something pretty fucking scary i bet yes true um so yeah, uh, Chase kind of reveals why he has started chatting to Fernanda here. Uh, he's lost and he needs some help from someone that he can trust. He's kind of looking for a pal. Yeah, and obviously this this gets recontextualized a bit more later. But like this is where, as much as he's the worst, you kind of start to feel a little bit sorry for Chase here too. Like obviously you put him and Fernanda side by side, and it's kind of no question who you feel sorry for more, but he's still like not a victim but he's he's so alone and lost and the way all this bullshit works he doesn't have anyone he can turn to like it's a very different problem obviously it's kind of like this weird suffering from success sort of deal but like he is still suffering Mm, yeah i guess just there's no winners in these situations yeah i mean this is a it's an interlude, right, Elliot? So, of course, we wouldn't get through it without Wabo attempting to redeem some characters in our eyes. Um, and we don't fully get there because Chase is still a piece of shit, but I kind of definitely start to sympathize him with him more than I used to. Yeah, and, like, God, heaven forbid, even Seth. Like, I, I guess we'll get there, but um, it, it's it's a different ball game with them, but, they, like, I, I feel for them a little bit, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I put out these lines where Chase makes an attempt to bridge the gap between himself and Fernanda, and she thinks, he wanted so badly to close this divide, 
Fine, she'd use that. She'd step back, forcing him to extend further to reach out. It's heartbreaking, right? Like, she knows he is trying to be a brother or build a sibling relationship and is just like, nope, let's, you know, let's uh, turn that into an advantage. Yeah, like the, the two big things that jumped out to me about Fernanda in this chapter was how much she focuses on, like, her own body language and positioning and poise and how much she thinks of everything as transactional. And that's like her doing both of those right now. There's like, she she notices, oh, Chase genuinely wants to connect to me. And her response is, okay, well, I'm going to change my positioning to like increase my end of this transaction, which is just like, wow, like she is so far gone. Yeah, yeah, fully, <sighs> fully in manipulation mode. There's not even a moment of like, should I consider this? Hmm. She, she just immediately thinks about how to use it. Yeah, it never crosses her mind. Like, there's actually one bit where um, I think she calls Chase like Mr. Head of the family. Mm. And, and then he gets really upset and she's like, she thinks to herself, she wasn't sure why it bothered him so much when she said that, but she filed it away. And so it's kind of like she she's literally not even capable of figuring out why it hurts Chase that she refuses to connect with him emotionally. Um, but that's how far this gap is, is Fernanda has been so hurt by all this, you know, she's making Verona's home life look pretty ideal right now with like how messed up she has been by, by all of this. And then on the other hand, like Chase has just sort of fucked around and wasted his privilege and kind of has no idea why this divide is so big. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's surely chase knows this divide must be as big as it is right like he you don't get the impression he has done too much to to bridge the gap before literally today yeah but i think he genuinely sort of thought of her as his sister and he didn't realize how bad she had it like he thought he had it bad so he was like oh i'll just try and reconnect and she'll want that too and i don't think he realizes how much she hates his guts yeah i guess chase doesn't realize how much most people hate his guts is probably a feature of his character so it's <laughs> True. consistent he maybe also just overestimated uh how many emotions fernanda is capable of feeling mm, yeah his emotional appeals clearly don't work <laughs> um, i mean it's kind of funny that the emotional manipulator almost has none yeah, i suppose that comes with the territory yeah kind of being an outsider to emotions lets us study them from that position, I guess, maybe. Yeah, just that, that focus on manipulating them kind of turns inwards to the point where you manipulate them off on yourself so that they're not a factor. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, Chase is kind of trying to get her to open up to him more and build more of that sibling relationship. And Fernanda drops a bit of a bombshell that she's been sitting on, which is a drunk confession conversation that uh, Chase and Fernanda had last year. I'm. Ooh, uh, like this is this is a very powerful moment. Um, it's sort of like the climax of this whole conversation. Um, and like obviously the actual content, like what Chase said to her, is awful, and Fernanda kind of outlines it in such a way as to hurt him mm. uh, maximally. But I, I almost, it's almost like what struck me more than that was the way Fernanda is like is telling like again like she's held on to this. She's waited for the perfect time to tell him. Like it's not just that what he said was awful, but like, I'm heartbroken at the way Fernanda is like held onto it as a tool to use later. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, clearly something that runs in the family, this vibe of like, 
here's something that I can drop at an opportune moment. I, what is Fernanda trying to achieve here, do you think? Other than you get the impression that she's just trying to make sure that barrier between the two of them stays nice and intact, and this is a way to just kind of basically effectively slap him in the face a few times. Um, do you think there's anything else that she's up to here? I, I'm curious what her goal is because it's like, this is so juicy and she doesn't use it for any real major power play, right? I, I think it's like a more subtle power play. Like it's about guilting Chase and putting him in the position where like she kind of has this karmic edge over him sort of deal. Like, mm. you know, he will, for the next while now, while he's particularly vulnerable and while this meeting is about to come up, like we'll look to her a bit more because he's going to be trying to make it up to her i think would be her plan so it's sort of this is the time because this is the best time to have that on the top of his mind so that she can use it mm. yeah okay i mean that makes sense just a way to kind of elevate her status relative to him for a bit especially because yeah. this is a uh tumultuous time at the very least yeah exactly like if if things in alexander's domain had gone better she might have had more situations where she could have used that guilt she was holding over Chase. Um, but things yeah. kind of get away from her there. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I want to pull this out. Just a very silly moment when they finish up their conversation. Chase, I'll read it out. He looked up at the sun, 13 minutes, 20 seconds, he said, which is such a stupid power. <laughs> the ability to tell the exact time by looking at the sun. But I love it. It's so Chase. I didn't notice that was what he was doing, but I like that. Like, because he doesn't he say later in the chapter he's not like a full like he's not like a future seeing auger. He's like somebody who specializes in observing the present. Yes. Um. So of course that sort of thing could extend to telling the time from the position of the sun. Mm. Yeah. Why wouldn't it? It's awesome. I mean, it's useless, but it's very showy. <laughs> um. So yeah, uh, this conversation wraps up and then Fernanda goes and uh, picks up Layla from this skinny dipping session and the two walk back and discuss friendship. Um, yeah, and, and just a little side note before we get into that and, and those two. Mm. Um, so one of the extra people that Layla had brought out here uh, was Demarion Stein. Or mm -hmm. I guess it's pronounced Stein because uh, Fernanda in all of the chapter misspells it like stain as in like food stain mm -hmm. whereas it's spelt s-t-e-y-n yes um but the only time in this chapter it's spelt correctly uh is when layla says it uh which is just this nice little touch that i think is fernanda's disdain for uh demarion like bleeding through yeah i mean i can see it the fact that she calls him stain like a food stain is a great way of her just subtly undercutting him that's i imagine how she spells it in her own head yeah well i mean we kind of have evidence for that because this is her chapter and, and that's how it's spelled um i mean also just i guess like shout out the reason i noticed that was because i was looking for all the characters who got introduced in the student guide because but yeah just shout out to the student guide that like best extra <laughs> material ever i use that shit so often um especially compared to all the others like it, it's my favorite extra material just for amount of usage uh yeah it's it's a good one isn't it wait yeah it, I just especially because the way characters come in and out and there's so many in the school it's mm. so useful to just have a handy list yeah i i've sometimes had trouble keeping track of wait which which one is this is this one of the you know the 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 
uh, crazy people that work with like addiction and drugs. Oh no, wait, who's <laughs> this again? Yeah, like yeah, exactly. I may not recognize people. the name, but if I like look someone up and it says "hot girl totem," I'm gonna be like, oh, it's that oh, nerd yes, kid. It's this one, that, yeah, exactly. That they were that they were on the the group project with, and and they tapped out his power. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um. But yeah. So so back to I guess Layla. Um. And Fernandez thing, like this this interaction to Layla was was a different kind of heartbreak to me than the Chase one because I think she's actually on the verge of genuinely caring for Layla, um, and obviously that kind of gets dissolved at the end of the chapter, mm-hmm. um, but it kind of feels like she she actually is like she she genuinely thinks of Layla as her actual best friend, mm. and she still can't help like doing this transactional stuff to like win the thing like she doesn't promise anything to layla but she gets a promise out of layla for lessons and she's kind of proud of that and you're just like oh this is actually the person you care about the most and you're still sort of shamelessly manipulating them and and trying to win the interaction (sighs) yeah it's um it's sad right I i got the sense from this that if they had had maybe six months or a year of more time of slowly building this friendship and having lessons together and etc possibly Layla could have broken through this defensive shell to have a genuine friendship with Fernanda but obviously the shakeups around the BHI mean that that's never going to happen which means that Layla oh uh, sorry Fernanda is still going to be just locked away in her own emotionless box yeah yeah um i i would agree like i could see a path where maybe these two could actually form a genuine bond but i guess like Mm. everyone in this school says it's actually very hard to do that usually the only people you can trust is family and we kind of seen that's its own kind of bullshit like family's only going to stick by you as long as it helps the family um Mm. and it's just kind of more likely that you can stay on the path that will help the family than it is with like other friends so like maybe not honestly like maybe Maybe that's kind of the point. Maybe there's always bullshit, like what's happening at the BHI that stops that from happening. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's a part. I'm sure there's a, like, consistent uh, drive for conflict to be built just so there's no unification of uh, of practitioners in this system, something like that, right? Like, yeah, the universe keeps conflict going so that things don't get too friendly between practitioners. I don't think the universe does it. I think the practitioners handle it all on their Sure, own. yeah, that's fair. You know, <laughs> all you need is to get some Alexanders and, and Bristos. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we skip ahead to this meeting of the Belangers with Fernanda getting a front row seat as Alexander's apprentices begin to stab him in the back in his face, um, starting with Nicolette. And this is one <laughs> we've been uh, waiting for for a while, and it finally comes in here, and it's... Fine, Alexander's totally chill about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, sure. He's like, oh, maybe one day I'll get you back. And I think even all of his apprentices are like, yeah, but we know you. Um, yeah. I, I, I love how this this sort of is set up with Fernanda actually seems to genuinely look up to Nicolette. Mm. And, and you can kind of see that connection because Nicolette was someone who was on the bottom. Like, she had nothing and she has just through sheer force of being like good at stuff, worked her way up to being like a, a Bell and Jay apprentice. Mm. And, and so you can see how like from Fernanda's point of view, like this is someone to kind of idolize. Yeah. Um, which I think Nicolette is a good role model for Fernanda. So yeah. I approve. 
good stuff. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Hopefully some of the genuinely being a good person stuff that Nicolette does would wipe off on her as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, hopefully. <laughs> um, I, I want to point out one other thing as Fernanda has a brief interaction with Alexander before the betrayals all start, she asks about, uh, he asks how she is and she says, Oh, I'm good, but I would be better if I had won that ticket referencing when the Kennedy has kind of earned Alexander's favor uh, a little bit unfairly over her. Um, and uh, there's this moment where Alexander kind of takes a bit of a brief respite from the worries of this situation and delivers a moment, uh, uh, slips a little bit back into teaching mode. And it's just like, oh man, Alexander, he really just is at home when he's delivering lessons, imparting lessons to people, <laughs> right? Like he really just loves it. Yeah. Like he's, he's at home when he's headmastering basically. Uh, yeah. I like that. I, especially because obviously the way Alexander operates for the rest of this chapter um I, I struggle not to connect him and fernando a bit like he's obviously held on to this previous transaction till the point where he can use it most effectively which is kind of what fernando just did with that conversation with chase mm. so you can sort of see i think these two connect for a little bit because i wouldn't be surprised to learn that she's a, a bit of a baby alexander mm. yeah yeah interesting like she kind he, of is I, isn't she I think she, she, you know, Seth compares the, or talks about, like, people with Alexander's drive later, and I mm. think Fernanda is someone with Alexander's drive. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I can see it. Um, but yeah, I love as well how you, you feel the escalation in this scene, because, um, like, Fernanda has been so on top of everything. Uh, like, up until now, like, she's been reading everyone's body language, kind of understanding the dynamics and being able to put herself in the right spot or whatever. And we get in here and she's completely lost. She's like, nobody's giving me anything to work off of. Like, mm. I know they're tense, but I can't really read any more than that. Like it sort of escalates things. I think a bit subconsciously for you because Fernanda's suddenly lost. And that w the whole chapter before this has been setting up how good she is at reading people like this. So now that she's lost, you're sort of like, Oh, this is like high level shit. Hmm. Mm, yeah interesting kind of escalates it a bit um yeah maybe just representing that there's so much i mean this this chapter this part of this chapter has so much stuff going on behind like the revelation of all of these betrayals and and basically effectively coup and claims coming to resolution right that's the scene that we're mm. seeing here and i think it's great yeah well, i mean it's almost easy to forget that fernanda is the pov for half of this for swearing scene like, she gets so pushed to the sideline as all the big players move about that, like, she, I, like, apart from, like, reactions like Fernanda moving away from people or towards people, uh, like, she's not even really a presence in the scene. Mm. Mm. Yeah. She's, uh, she's small potatoes, so she probably doesn't have that much insight into what's going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, like, she's just sort of being left behind a bit. Um, it's all this bullshit goes on the top. Anyway, I, as, as well as Nicolette announces like her defection and everything. I love how Zed sort of refuses to stay uninvolved as Ray and Durashay are telling him to. Like he just he he can't it's like it's like, you know, this obviously culminates in in the fight he and Ray are having in, in the present. But I love how you you start to see it already because I couldn't help but like support Zed as he's just like, No, fuck you, I want to talk to my friend about why she's betraying us. Mm. I mean, yeah. Fair enough. It's pretty. Uh, 
I don't know. I, I guess I don't have a solid conception of what this betrayal tangibly means in the sense that, like, I feel like this isn't, you know, Nicolette says to Zed, hey, I'd like if we were still able to be friends. And Zed says, oh, I'm not sure if that's still going to be possible. My reaction to reading that is like, oh, isn't it? Like, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it's just because Alexander's being so chill about it that this minimizes how much of a betrayal this is. But it seems pretty, it seems basically like Nicolette gets out uh, about as much as, as it, all she's really doing is just like handing in her notice, right? Like it feels like Nicolette is just handing in notice for a job. And it's it read to me kind of like a coworker saying, Oh, I'd like us to stay friends and the coworker saying, Well, I don't know if we can, which is just a weird thing to say, right? I think you're underestimating how not chill Ale- I think Alexander is like not outwardly unchill, if that makes sense. Like he's not the person to yell and throw a tantrum. Well, he does a little bit later on, but mm. I I think he's like that silent uh anger type of person. Um and that's sort of the read I've got. Like I'm pretty sure Nicolette wouldn't go within a hundred meters on me if she could help it after this. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Alexander basically says to Nicolette, like, I'm not going to take any immediate action against you. That obviously doesn't extend if you join a rival team and I have to take action against that team. That's basically what he's saying. Right. I think that's pretty fair. I think that's pretty fair response. I mean, yeah, but like, just because you didn't murder someone for leaving you, that like that doesn't mean that it's all good, you know? Mm. Like there's there's a gap between all good and murder. And I think I think he's a fair way down that scale. I don't know. I guess we'll see. We'll I I imagine we'll talk about this more once we get to the fourth defector. Yeah. Yeah. Um so next up uh is Tanner, who again announces he is defecting. Um and Tanner doesn't get that much uh, dive into because he's not really an important character. <laughs> um, but it kind of sets up that if one more person defects, things are going to get problematic. Uh, and so Alexander asks Seth and Chase, are you defecting or not? And Chase outlines the offer that he got. Yes. Uh, and I wanted to read out uh, part of a quote for that because uh, he, he sort of says this to Fernanda and he says, so part of the deal is apprenticeships for every member of the Wit family. Fernanda, my cousins, the adults who want to learn. Uh, also, a cure for a heart-wrenching my aunt suffered when a practice backfired. Mm-hmm. And Fernanda hears this and just immediately thinks, apprenticeships for everyone? No thought given to the aunt. Wait, at all. <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't uh, consider that, but she really doesn't give a shit about the aunt. Huh? Wait, yeah. Wait, we'll, I'll be first in line to give a lot of shit to Chase for a lot of the stuff he's done. At least he seems to genuinely care about people, which is just not something I can say for Fernando at the end of this interlude. Um, mm. uh, but yeah, but I mean, like for me, this sort of seals the deal the way that like Chase outlines this, and you're like, well, okay, like Fernando's all aboard team defection now because her whole life has been defined by needing to get some sort of skill in the practice, so she's useful as an asset, and getting a legit apprenticeship would like seal that absolutely. Mm. Yeah, uh definitely will assist. And god, what an offer, right? Like it's so perfect. The the <laughs> the way that this offer is so perfect and framed in the sense of this chapter is it's incredible. Yeah, like as a twist on on recontextualizing the whole conversation that was the first half of this chapter, it's fantastic because you're suddenly like, oh, 
Like, that's why Chase was attempting to be a big brother, because he's done his readings and he knows that if he takes this deal, everyone's better off, but they lose what little concept of being a family they have. And so this was basically him giving Fernanda a chance to, like, prove that they could be a family. And I feel like her responses just sort of, yeah, sealed it. She was like, no, I don't want to be your sister. And so he was like, well, okay, like, I'll do this for you. And it's surprisingly selfless of him. I mean, mm. kind of still a little bit selfish because he doesn't want all the pressure or, or whatever the fuck. But um, yeah, like, I don't know. It, like, it, it's it's such a good twist. It's this actually kind of beautiful moment from Chase. Like, I loved it. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Like, oh, Chase gave this test to Fernanda of, is there a chance that this family can be put back together, at least the parts that he cares about? And she definitively gives the answer of, nope. And so that's it. Chase has kind of had the decision made for him. He's There's no reason for him to worry about keeping the family together. Why not just let them all have their own little happier bits? Yeah, well, I mean, basically, he made Fernanda make the decision. Like She didn't know she was doing it, but she kind of made that decision uh, for herself and for everyone. He gave her the power, the power and she didn't know. Mm. Um, it's It's such a great moment. And it's kind of tragic as well because... Of course, in this world of practitioners, more success correlates with your family becoming less of a family. Um, sounds like they're already pretty fucking broken anyway. So, um, you know, not a huge loss, but like the fact that, you know, it, there seems to be a direct correlation between how successful a family is and how disconnected they are from like being a close family. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's just sad. Like, Going back and rereading the earlier conversation with the stuff, for, with the thing in mind of Chase is measuring if this family is salvageable. It just makes it so sad, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, because because he's basically, it, it's kind of a little bit selfish because I think it's like everyone will be happier except him if he takes the offer. So mm. there's that little bit of like, can I save the family for me? But I think there's also just this thing where he's like, is the family worth saving? And Fernanda mm. tells him, no, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> uh and oh. and he makes this decision anyway there's even a moment where fernanda tries to sort of get him to stop and he's like no i made this decision or you made this decision for us and like i'm doing this for all of you yeah. uh like fuck it i don't want this pressure anymore um yeah i mean uh, one last note that we sort of skipped over so obviously at this point uh three of them i think have decided to defect uh mm. nicolette tanner and chase um Seth is still TBD, and so the only person who ends up staying is Y. And I wanted to bring Y up just because in this chapter and in the next chapter, I think it's about three or four times we just get told, oh, Y is away and he's mm. busy, and he will continue to be away and busy. And it's just like, Does have, he we exist? Been told that, <laughs> have we been told that he's away and he's busy one too many times? What is this? Is this Alexander's secret weapon? Or like, I don't know. I'm, mm. I guess I'm just just blatantly tinfoiling here but i just we got told very precisely that why is away and is busy one too many times for me to be like oh why is not going to come in and be relevant at all yeah what do you think is who do you think why is why is he not in the story yet what's going to happen when he comes back is it going to be like um you know he's he's maybe to do with only in some way i mean that's the running theme of that's what feels like the weird not deus ex machina but kind of new element that is going to be introduced is going to be right 
Yeah, well, he he's the most loyal villain, Jay, and he's also the one who, like, yeah, he's the one we know nothing about, and and all we know is that he's the most loyal one, and we're never told what he's busy doing. Like, there's there's almost this implication of oh, he's busy, and you you assume oh, he's doing business for the Bell and Jay Circle, but like he could just be preparing some weird shit somewhere, like to to fight for the Blue Heron Institute. Like, we don't know. Mm. Um. Really I don't know if no he'll idea. be only. <laughs> I, I feel like he'll be very. It'll be some very very augury thing. I don't know what that means, but I almost feel the opposite. I feel like we'll just be impressed by how augurish uh, what he does is. Mm. Mm. Um. Yeah. I guess we'll have to see. I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to see. <laughs> um. Okay. So. Uh. Yeah. We have three defectors and one loyalist. Uh. And then Seth who has to answer, what side is he picking? And he says, no. Um, and so Alexander very reasonably decides to take him off the board by force-wearing him. Uh, I mean, this scene is just, yeah, like, holy shit. Like, there's yep. so much tension. Theatrics come into it in such a powerful way. Obviously, there's, like, huge fucking stakes. Like, this was an enthralling read. It's good, isn't it? God, it's so good. Yeah, uh, and this is where we get that line from Seth, where he's, like, Alexander is criticizing him for having no ambition, and Seth mm. is like, "If everyone had your kind of ambition, the world would be a bloodbath." Mm. Which you know, Seth's a piece of shit, and and he's a, like a lazy dickhead. Don't get me wrong, but he's got a point. Yep, it's fair enough. He's not wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's uh, true. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean, Alexander uses uh, the promises uh, Seth made to his dying grandma to. Uh, fucking forswear him, and I feel like this mm-hmm. is just like a scenario that's designed to make it clear, like this is evil. What Alexander is doing, like the the fact that we chose promises to a dying grandma to mm. use and and manipulate like this, like like I, for me, I, I like I read this, and it's it's harking back to the Fernanda thing. It's like, why did you have that paper and stuff signed, and you knew about these promises, Alexander, unless you were keeping them in your back pocket. Like, like you know what I mean? Like, there's such a malintent to the fact that he had this set up at all. Like, it was obviously only ever meant to be a last resort, and he has to use it here. But you sort of got to question the kind of person who's building that sort of shit up against their own nephew. Mm. Yeah. Do you, though? I mean, you know, in our last bonus material, we got the Kenneteers planning out contingencies for... The Kennet others. That was a similar situation of building up contingencies that they honestly hope that they never have to use. Um, that's what Alexander did, and uh, he had to use it. It's sad, but you know, I'm sure he didn't want to have to use it. You were just determined to die on this hill that Alexander's not the worst, aren't you? I um... think Alexander's a piece of shit, but his <laughs> actions are totally justified in the story that we've seen, except for in the Snowdrop uh, Nicolette interlude. After the Nicolette interlude, Alexander has been a absolute nice, kind person. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the argument I'd make against it, the comparison, I, I, I think the comparison to what the Kennedys are doing with the Kenner others is actually a really interesting point. Mm. Uh, like, I really like that argument. I, like, I think I would argue against it by saying it's, it's different because Alexander was the one in, in power and he didn't actually do anything to actively help Seth be better he just presented him with op- opportunities like he didn't 
he could have held this promise over his head as a motivator earlier on if that if like if he really wanted to be a good person mm. like the Kennedys are gathering this these ways to bind their friends but are sort of like oh we hate this and you know we're going to seek permission before we use it mm. alexander shows no like oh i hated that i had to do this like I guess it's up to the reader to imply whether how much you want to think he felt this was bad that he had to do. Mm. But I, I didn't get the impression he thought it was bad. I just think he thought it was a safety net. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're right. And maybe the fact that he could have been like, hey, Seth. Well, okay, here's what he says to Seth. He says, before Seth refuses, he says, Seth, I'm prepared to forswear you. And Seth says, yeah, whatever, do it, mate, basically. And then Alexander <laughs> does it. So it's not like he doesn't, like, he do, he gives him ample outs, right? Which just I are mean, not taken. Uh, Seth has a point that it's shitty of Alexander to force them onto sides <laughs> like this. But then also, I guess, to be fair to Alexander, he, he gets Seth to admit that Seth probably would have gone over to Bristow eventually. Yeah, and it's um, like, uh, it's shitty to be forced onto a side. It, it, Seth, if you want, you could have said something like, oh, I'm actively going to remove myself from this conflict. I'm going to say, no, I'm not going to get involved. I'm going to swear that I won't come back to the Blue Heron Institute for two months, and then I'll come back. Whatever, right? Like, Seth doesn't really do much to put himself in a neutral position, right? Like, he says, oh, I'll just hang around and do whatever I want, basically. And Alexander gives him... Mm -hmm. I I guess, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I'm just kind of on Team Nicolette of, like, Yes, Seth's the fucking worst and we hate him, but there's still this is still unnecessary. He still doesn't deserve this. Um like I mm. like if Alexander wanted to, he could have done something less severe. Like all of these options you're saying that Seth could have taken, Alexander I think could have more explicitly offered them. Like I sure. I, I don't know. Sure, maybe you're right. I I think uh, I don't know. I again, I don't think Alexander is a saint. But I think he's not acting in an unjustified way, in my opinion. Like, he's invested, let's just say, some time and effort into these five apprentices. And three of them are saying to him, no, I'm going to act against you. And his response has been, okay, fine. At least you're telling me, fine. And Seth is saying to him, I might stab you in the back. I might not. I'm not going to tell you. And you're going to have to constantly worry about it. And that's just such a slimy, shitty thing to do. I yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I, get, I just think there are better ways to handle it that don't involve forswearing, which, like, as Nicolette brings up, it's it's fucking a terrible thing to do. You it is, should, you should and maybe there that. are, but I, I don't know. This is the system we live in. I'm kind of... Well, righto, Corbin. Yeah, I'm, I'm pulling out the Corbin <laughs> argument here a bit, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, I don't know. I think change the system, yes. Is this the right time to change the system? I don't know. Maybe not. Change the system when you're not uh, under attack. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, mm. whatever. I, I feel like we're going around in circles now, mm. but um, yeah. Um, as as a quick aside, um, yeah. I I just want to point like I have been slowly rereading the story as well, and I just got to I think it was like in two dot five. Um, it was the one after Lucy had that big yell at Avery and Verona. Uh, <laughs> uh like after uh like the incident with the fairy early mm. after uh Verona makes a very similar promise to what Seth did that like she's going to try to be better mm. and I guess that comparison just jumped out to me here because like this is a 
Probus that has come and stabbed Seth in the back, but it's like he made it. Uh, yeah, I guess he 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 wasn't given a framework to actually help him do it. Like I think Alexander Conflict talks about how he gave him opportunities, but I don't think anyone was actually encouraging him or putting him in the right mental space to take advantage of them. If anything, uh, Alexander probably was okay with this because this was the option that left him with this power to forswear him. Mm. Whereas, like you know, when Verona and Avery make this promise to Lucy that they're going to try to be better, it's like Lucy helps them to do that. Mm. Yeah, fair, fair Just enough. Just a bit of a cultural comparison. Like it's 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 a good thing to make a promise like this if you've got the Kennedys with your back. Whereas if you're in the Bell and Jay circle, uh, promising to try and be a better person is apparently a terrible idea. Well, promising to try and be a better person and not actively doing it, you know. That's fair. Yeah. yeah, maybe it's more of a statement on how much of a piece of shit Seth is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and props to, props to Nicolette, um, our, our public defender, uh, trying her darndest to save, like, I think the person who is objectively the biggest piece of shit in her life. Yep. She gives it a good shot, doesn't she? Um, Nicolette definitely is a undeniably a good character. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> um, yeah, she she really doesn't have to do this, but she does. Yeah, she puts more effort into saving Seth than Seth does. Than Seth does, for sure. And again, more evidence. Seth is just a piece of shit. Like, <laughs> he just he doesn't give a shit. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel a bit bad because I'm starting to think that maybe Seth just has some, like, depression or something that is causing him to just be stuck in a rut and maybe this kind of punitive justice is not necessarily the rehabilitation that he needs. Yeah, like maybe a comparison to Verona's dad isn't out of the question, as in somebody mm. who's just stuck. And yes, they're hurting the people around them, but like one of the ways you could fix that is by helping them and, and trying to lift them up. Like, mm. you know, we talked about this with Verona's dad, like not, not from Verona or anything, but he needs help from someone. Mm. Um. And Seth was maybe the same, but instead he was in this bullshit system where Alexander probably was not actually wanting him to get better if if this option was left there. So, um, yeah, he was just kind of let so people let him fall into this position. And yeah, because you're right, he does he doesn't fight it. Like you know, there's definitely a sense of he, he's just willing to give up. He doesn't like his life, and he's happy to let it go. Yeah, which is pretty <sighs> glum, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Um, we also, okay, so uh, we'll get to this in a second, I guess, actually. So yeah, Nicolette does her best, uh, but it doesn't work. Seth gets forsworn and the gang leaves the office and Fernanda kind of comes to terms with a new status quo here. Um, Alexander decides to leave the school and Fernanda stands apart from uh, Layla and all of her previous allies. I love how after like, the intensity and drama of Seth getting forsworn where like Alexander felt like he was so in control and, and it was also grandiose. If it felt very contrasted to me against this bit, like Alexander versus Bristow, this conversation they have, it felt so petty. Like Mm. Alexander's like, I'm going to leave. Uh, This does not mean I cede control. And Bristow's like, ah, but I take it. And then Alexander's like, no, I'm leaving the executive decisions to Raymond. And it's just like, it's that really petty, dumb bullshit of coup and claim. And it's just, yeah, I, I, don't, I guess this stood out to me after the power of that forswearing scene, Alexander to come out and start arguing shitty little semantics with Bristol. It's just like, this is such a pathetic fight. Like, why are we mm. doing this? I'm, yeah, no, I had the same vibe. 
The reason I talked about wanting the Alexander interlude was so that we could feel like we knew what was going on in Alexander's mind. And I still feel like we just have no idea, right? <laughs> yeah, because he's he's still playing fairly confident. Like, he's clearly stressed, but he's still giving us the vibe that he might have something up his sleeve. But I also believe Alexander's the person who would act like that even if he doesn't. Yes, like, he would. Because that is, like, part of the game. like. If you admit defeat, you're done. Um, yeah, um, but I, I mean, again, he's done nothing, right? He yeah. forswore Seth. That's the one thing he's done. He's literally done nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm unclear if forswearing Seth, like, how, does that help him or, like, how much? Yeah, I'm assuming um, gives him a bit of a power boost, but that's it. Like, he hasn't used it for anything, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm undecided. Like, I feel like Alexander is acting like he's got a secret plan. And given he's, like, a bit of a fortune teller and wise out in the background, like, it's possible. But I'm also more than willing to believe he's just acting like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm starting to suspect that Alexander's plan specifically involves the Kennedys forming a rebellion. I mean, it could do. I... I, I, I don't know. I'm of the impression, impression that he actually was just overconfident and and didn't do enough. Mm. Uh, like, he, he didn't realize how bad his position was and mm. um, he's just been caught off guard uh, by Bristow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe. Maybe you're right. Um, oh, we also get a bit of a quick scene where we see what happened with our, uh, America, Ted, which is fun. Yeah. Um, it's bullshit. Total bullshit. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get more resolution of that eventually. Yeah, we, we talk about it a bit more next chapter and we'll bring it up, but it, like, it's hilarious how just gross her defense of Alexander is, just in a very funny way. Mm. Um, it's, it's almost comedic in this very <laughs> tense chapter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, uh, once that's over, like, we get back to just like, the bad feels time because Fernanda comes sort of to the fore again in the, in the text and... I mean, yeah, she sort of notes like, oh, like, you know, I didn't explicitly plan on dicking Layla over, but uh, now she's promised to give me lessons and we're on the opposite side. So she's going to get gainsaid or, mm-hmm. or or something. And, um, you know, wasn't actually my plan, but it worked out very well. Is sort of the vibe she gives off. And it's just, it's like, she's sort of like, that's how you need to operate in this world. And like Alexander has just kind of completely validated that thinking. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, she's she's yep. learned. She's learned from the teacher. Yeah, which is like, I find Fernanda absolutely terrifying and evil, and also I don't blame her for that at all, because it's, it is the world she's grown up in. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, I'm sure we will get more of Fernanda and we will resolve this uh, soon, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's presumably what Arc 7 is going to be all about. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of, shall we jump into it? Uh, the first yeah. chapter of Arc 7, Gone Ahead, 7.1. Uh, we're in Verona's Ahead, uh, and we start off with Bree quickly explaining the forswearing and what's happened and why none of the senior students are around, basically. Yeah, it's basically, like, I feel like the opening of this chapter is just Wild Bow through Bree kind of running us through. So just, just in case you had any hope, like, none of the senior students are here to help. Uh, why is a way? Uh, I think the closest thing they have to help is that Eloise is off off in the wind, and mm. apparently she's uh, like the biggest threat. So she's kind of taking up a lot of their mental energy by not being a known factor. 
Yes. Um, and uh, maybe the other interesting wrinkle in all of this is Durashay. Mm. Um, like Ray is clearly being the bad kind of neutral, uh, mm. which is why Zed has has like fucked off. Um, but Durashay, we seem unsure exactly what kind of neutral she's being. Mm. Um, I I honestly don't really have any confident guesses. Yeah, she's a real wrinkle, isn't she? I, I'm about seventy percent sure that she's just going to do nothing until we have the new headline uh, headmaster. But she could really just do anything, right? <laughs> yeah, I I guess I do kind of get the impression if we think about what she was talking about in her binding class, mm. there was so much of that stuff of like social binding, like she viewed everything as binding, and um, she has this focus on very non-human others and like powers so maybe she just has absolutely zero interest in this bullshit like she views it as she'd view getting drawn in as some kind of binding um and she's not interested in human politics because they're not like you know fucking dinosaur monster beings or whatever the fuck Mm. um yeah so maybe it's just that maybe she's kind of this neutral of just refusing to get involved because it doesn't interest her yeah, I mean, but that's, I feel very short-sighted of her. I feel like if she's genuinely invested in this school, at least somewhat, like the Bristow headmastery is going to be so different to the Alexander one. I don't know. I, hmm. Yeah. On the other hand, her, her reputation is apparently like worldwide famous. So she, she probably has a bit of safety there in that like, she's a big draw for the school, regardless of who the headmaster is. Mm. So they're kind of inclined to just keep her appeased and if that means letting her stay out of it that i mean honestly given the kind of shit she summons just might actually be in everyone's favor for her to be not involved true true oh god i'm it's crazy to me that we're you know an arc into this bristol alexander conflict and i still feel like i have absolutely no idea how it's gonna end yeah yeah same um (sighs) okay uh So, yeah, um, the fact that we, as we get a bit more Bree stuff, we see a bit more of the uh, Hungry Choir kids basically coming out sometimes to punctuate her sentences. And this is so creepy. Like, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of excited to see what it looks like if Bree gets into a fight because I half expect that she will basically fight by throwing ghost children at people. And I'm so excited to see that. I mean, I know in this chapter she says, oh, it's best if I stay out of the conflict, which, yes, fair. But, man, if it happens, I want to see her just chuck some children at people. (laughs) Yeah, a bit easier said than done, right? Um, Yeah. I I think, yeah, because it's interesting. It is like a bit of a chunk of this part of the chapter is like her describing how they think she might be able to use that power, but they haven't quite figured it out yet. And the the fact that these kids sort of keep popping out of her with more and more frequency, uh, it's starting to feel like a bit of a Chekhov's gun. Mm. Um, like, you know, getting a whole speech on, yeah, there's probably some way to use the Hungry Choir's power, but we haven't figured it out. And then, yeah, kids popping out everywhere. It's like, it, yeah, it's going to go off at some point, I hope. Mm. And I hope she's okay. Yeah, uh, me too. Um, yeah, I do half expect that we'll see her in some sort of conflict, and I'm dreading it um it's it's interesting how she compares to matthew sorry i I just sort of had this thought like she Mm. matthew took on this doom and then seemingly had no support network and kind of succumbed to it and is now Mm. 
got it trapped inside him, but like it's it's you know seriously hurting his ability to practice or whatever. Whereas like Bree has the hungry choir in her, but she's getting all this support, you know, civil war aside. Um and she's getting these opportunities to try out different things with the hungry choir and like see how it will adapt to the binding and like, you know, oh we can like learn how I could channel it. Whereas like Matt never had any of those options, I don't think. He just kind of was left to suffer. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Interesting uh, distinction between them. It, I guess we can kind of see Brie as the example of what happens when something like Matthew happens, but with a support network, right? What does that look yeah. like? Um, I wonder if we'll see any more distinctions between them that we think come out that we need to kind of pay attention to that, that give us any insight into either Brie or Matthew's characters. Yeah, I guess I guess we'll see. Mm. Um. So yeah, uh, we finally get what you've been looking for for ages, Elliot. Talos <laughs> begins to explain who are the Oni and what what are the Oni. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the bit where it looked like it was going to go nowhere again, I was fucking livid. Like, there's a part mm-hmm. where they start and then somebody comes in, they get distracted, and I was like, you can't Not again, yeah. <laughs> and luckily Verona was thinking the same thing because she basically did exactly what I did in my living room, which was put her foot down and be like, no, we're no doing way, this not right the fuck now. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm pretty sure Wabo put this in just for you, Elliot, uh, because Verona <laughs> has had the exact same thought you've had, which is that the universe seems to discourage the spread of information about what Oni are. Uh, yeah, which which makes sense, uh, honestly. Like, if they're the anti-practice, it makes sense that the this, this systemic yeah. practice would kind of, you know... There's uh, some suppression of that information. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think it was, uh, I, I was on the, like, a Parahumans Discord earlier this week, like, chatting to people in the Pale channel, and I think it was, like, Side or, or someone who pointed out that this was actually the third instance of the Oni coming up like this. Like, it was a good thing Verona did this now, because this was the third attempt of yeah. someone to explain the Oni before it got, like, distracted. This is the time when it gets especially important. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, I mean, obviously, I feel like this is going to be crazy important specifically for this arc and just for the story as a whole Mm. um we're probably going to spend a while here i've written a lot uh i'm just sort of realizing um (laughs) but because for starters i feel like the only history really just reinforces how bullshit uh this idea that the status quo just like is Mm. um is like Mm. i mean obviously i'm maybe jumping ahead but like corbin because corbin's going to bring up this argument later but like talos literally explains that actually things were for the most part, better for others um, over there. Like, yeah. in, in general, it was like they were quite well accepted and they could move in and around and like work with or around humans quite easily. And it was just this minority of practitioner families who fucking escalated things and, and took it like way too far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th- this, this only stuff is great. I, I've kind of been... I haven't been fully jumping into it with you when you've been talking about how it's strange that we keep missing it, but this really reaffirms how much this Oni stuff matters because it so effectively ties into the thematic, oh, I guess just themes, the the thematic (laughs) themes that we've been seeing in this story, right? Like it's a perfect way to represent uh, in the other verse these ideas of balance and power of practitioners over others and rebuilding the system and what does that look like and what happens when the others try to do that and you know, even an extension, if we're taking this fully out into commentary on, on the real world, it's 
the only are effectively what happens if somebody within you know a a, a underclass to, to put it bluntly tries to rebel and change the system um when they're not really a a, a powerful majority they're a social minority and a minority in terms of power right like mm. they just don't have enough power to actively rebel and change the system and so maybe we need something that has practitioners a bit more on board maybe that's kenneth maybe it's something but i yeah, I, I love how well this ties into the themes of the story. Yeah, like because because the way Talos explains it, it, it's basically like just straight up, like yeah. So they were more integrated into society. Yeah. And then the practitioners started like abusing them more and more, and so then they did this like, and, and this is the thing that really gets me is like it's framed as this sort of violent rebellion. Yeah. But I want to I want to talk about that because what the Oni did is they just resisted labels and made yeah. themselves like less categorical like you know i would assume if if they were actually actively attacking people callus and corbin would have brought that up but they don't what they say is oh they made it harder for us to enslave them by breaking the categories so it's like oh you know it, it was like yes it was violent for the practitioners but only if you tried to enslave them which is just like yeah. it it's it's not aggressive it's sending this message of hey if you try to hurt us uh you'll get hurt back so maybe don't yeah um yeah it's very defensive right like all they really tried to do is defy labels and that seems to be basically the key component of an oni is that when you check the form for what type of other are you they're the other other they don't fit into any <laughs> box and that's such a like it doesn't seem like they're doing it so that they can be better at hunting down and killing practitioners maybe that's what some of them do but at first, it seems like it's just a reaction. It's just a, no, we don't want to get bound. Please stop. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the way Talos phrases it is he says, this made it dangerous to practice. And the previous fact that he's established for us is that practice over there meant aggressively binding others into objects. Mm. So it's like the reason it was dangerous was because the practitioners there were like trying to catch them and put them in, in objects. And you know their changing of the categories made that dangerous to do. It's just, it's just like, yeah, like I, like I would even argue against that being considered a violent form of rebellion because it's actually defensive. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the only are pretty interesting, aren't they? They're an interesting group. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as like a just a fun world building note, I love how this is manifest as like the only are anti-practice like they they sort of literally pay play into the element of surprise and they drift away from repetition like it's a very it's the opposite of all the other practices in the only magic sort of plays off subverting expectation and patterns rather than leaning into them mm. uh it's going to make them very fun to have in the story now like you know we've got some only practitioners on side and i can't wait to see what unexpected crazy bullshit they pull <laughs> <laughs> yeah what crazy bag of tricks they have access to yeah because it's it's like we've spent the last six arcs building up the rules of this world and now arc seven's like hey here's a bunch of shit that's going to do the exact opposite and that's yeah. a very fun premise yeah um i love in our notes you've put a bunch of things that are tying together only practitioners and the kenneteers and the overlap between them i'd love for you to just run through this list because i <laughs> I really want to dive into it, but I want to give you the chance to bring up all the parallels that you noticed as you were writing this out, because I think they're great. Yeah, sorry, this section got so fucking long. Um, 
<laughs> I mean, you've been yeah. waiting for it for a while, right? <laughs> yeah, I went nuts. Um, yeah, I mean, there's like, obviously, I, I feel like there's comparisons to be made, not not just like with the Kenneteers and the Kennet others and the Oni, but like specifically, like our trio of Oni Kenneteer, uh, Oni practitioners that are joining the group are like three mostly wild practitioners, two and a half wild practitioners. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's people who found an other and became its patron. Yes. Um, which seems very intentionally to mimic the Kenneteers. Yes. Um, and yeah, like I, I don't quite know exactly where that's going to go, but I can't wait to find out. Like this idea that we have three other people who have been, I, yeah, I mean, they're going to be the closest thing to the Kenneteers that we've seen. And, and that's what like everyone says. Oh, we originally thought that you were maybe only people but you weren't quite quirky enough Mm. um which i think verona takes offense to which i thought was hilarious um yeah but i mean like this has to tie into like all the stuff miss has been thinking and talking about right like this we've long suspected miss is maybe attempting something like changing the paradigm i think that's been our loose theory and it's like it's hard not to tie that to the oni because that's what they tried to do like is this Mm. How different is what Miss is trying to what the Oni tried? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can, can you pull out the two quotes? I just love these quotes that you put out. <laughs> okay. Um. So okay, yeah. Well, so one of the ones is um. Uh, I think it's Talosus is explaining it. He says we rely on truth, and the Oni used the rule of discourse to shape their language. So every other in an area would agree to accept that every third statement from a powerful other would be false. And and so that kind of made it acceptable for the others to to lie all of to lie every third statement, yeah. And like, I mean, all I could think when I read that was, hey, what if you had an area, say a town <laughs> that was functioning as a hollow, and you had all the others in the area uh, already forming an alliance? They could probably agree to all sorts of weird shit. Um, yeah, I mean, we already know that, for example, Toad's Hollow is making all the goblins agree to some set of rules, right? Like. Maybe that set of rules includes one that says total every 10th statement from him can be a lie, you know, like, yeah, well, we never got that third, uh, like rule, um, from that chapter. So maybe it ties into that. Like, I, I don't know if it'll specifically be a rule of discourse because I don't think Wabo would be kind enough to give us that direct clue. So I'm almost like trying to take this step back and think like, what are the other rules of this world that we've accepted as fact that maybe aren't fact in canon? yeah 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 exactly it yeah it just it boggles the mind we've kind of got a hint of that i mean that idea has been seeded with snowdrop the fact that others who have rules can stick to their rules even if their rules kind of you know are exceptions to the overarching rules so hearing this again is kind of like oh is this something (laughs) yeah yeah um and then yeah obviously like the the other sort of quote that links the Kenneteers to and the Kennet to the Oni is this one uh, where uh, Talos again says, they worked with practitioners, but they pick out the people who were far from traditional family, uh, sorry, as far from traditional families as they could get and make them into others or get them to make complex cursed items or teach them tricks to make them assassins specializing in countering practitioners, which again, not really a super aggressive move from the Oni. Like, first of all, recruiting people to be practitioners who are the opposite of the people who are like enslaving you and binding you to objects. Yep. Hard to argue. Uh, Yep. Seems pretty neutral to positive to me. (laughs) Yeah. Arguably the aggressive part of this is turning them into assassins, assassins, specializing, but yeah, like whatever. 
But um, again, like that just feels like it relates to the Kennedys. Like they've been picked up by these yeah. others. Picked, picked out the people who are as far from traditional families as possible, make them into others. I mean, almost explicitly, Missa said this was something that we were thinking about doing, right? Well, the, I think it was Marissica who said the right. three of them were picked. Yes. Because they were already turning a bit other. Yes. I mean, the parallels here are crazy. I love it. I love <laughs> it. I don't think it's the Kennet others are secretly or Oni, right? I don't think it's that strong, but no. I do think it's... There's I, I, parallels and there's... I don't know. There's lessons to learn, right? Surely. Yeah. Like, I think whatever Miss was up to is going to relate. Like, I, I think this sort of confirms that Miss probably had some sort of grand plan that was anti the practice. Mm. And the Oni are kind of our template uh, for how that can work. Yeah. And I guess obviously we need to do better this time because it didn't work. I love that part where Lucy brings it up. She's like, so did it work? Did the Oni get out of that terrible dynamic and Talos is like, oh, you know, I never looked into that. What? <laughs> right? What In what world? <laughs> just, just didn't even occur to him to like, actually, you know, oh, did they win? Like, Yeah, what happened? Uh, so what ended up happening? Uh, don't know. Oh, God. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, So yeah, I, I want to call out one other thing, which is the main thing about Oni is the, you know, d d refusal to, to exist under a single label, right? Um, yeah, like, I think they even sort of establish here, Oni isn't like a category of other. It's almost, like, I think they describe it as a uniform, but I almost see it as an affiliation. Like, it's an other sort of taking a stand and saying, like, I will not be in one of your categories and bindable. Like, I'm yeah. going to stand up for myself, basically, yeah, exactly. is how I see it. Yeah, I agree. Um so I looked, I thought about this, these parallels between Oni and the Kennet Others, and another one is how much the Kennet Others naturally defy labels, right? Like, Toad Solo is a polite goblin, Guillaume is, so far, a fairly straightforward fae, Miss is a, is like mayor and gardener of this town, but intentionally defies labels, like, they all are a bit paradoxical to an extent, right? Yeah, yeah, although, like, it's hard to know how much i want to attribute that to like yeah maybe them trying to be doing stuff similar to the oni or how much it's just like i feel like maybe maybe the whole point of this is like that the others are not as simple like like practitioners have this tendency to label them and be like oh all goblins are like this yeah and yeah they're not actually like i like i i keep coming back to like 5.d opened with that little artist goblin yeah. who like was kind of this wholesome little artist goblin, and then everyone kept beating him up to the point where he turned into a murderer. Because mm. um, Toad Solo told him, you either kill or be killed. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like, like the, these are self-fulfilling prophecies. And may maybe that's all Kennet is. Kennet is a place that doesn't apply the pressures of the labels. It lets Kennet you be that, what you are. Yeah, like, just lets you be an individual. Like, maybe that's all it is. And that, like, that, hard to argue against that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Interesting. I, I'm now strongly converted to the opinion that we're going to see Oni uh, actively in this story, and it's going to play a role with the parallels to Kenneth. But we will have to get to that later. Yeah. Um, well, we, so, we've got our three. We've got our three boys who are the only practitioners with their Oni in a box. Uh, yes. So, um, yeah, I can't. I, I yeah, I can't wait to see them in action. This arc, I think it's going to be so fun. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, uh, Corbin begins explaining why the Oni should have just peacefully protested their oppression <laughs> and not gone all violent, huh? Not rioted. Um, so Lucy obviously leaves the table rather than getting bogged down in this <laughs> horrible, nonsensical argument. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, she tries, and uh, yeah, like I, I, God, I was like yelling at Corbin. Um, on a bit of a lighter note, there's one part of this conversation where Avery says to Corbin, "Shut your talky hole, Corbin." <laughs> Which is just the most fucking Avery insult I've ever heard. Oh, what a dweeb! (laughs) What a dweeb! Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was no accident that Lucy is the one who gets angry and has to leave the table in this because I felt having watching Lucy have this conversation with Corbin took me back to conversations I've had about like Black Lives Matter in the last Mm. year. Like, you know, I, 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 I'm not gonna, I'm not saying that you know the only thing is Black Lives Matter. Like, it's, it, it's a sort of broader metaphor than that but like i guess to i i can't help but like make a bit of a comparison between them like i think it, it's it's a comparison you can make because if we go back to like what the others keep saying about like how practitioners started up when the world was like much smaller like you can sort of see okay humans are spread out around the world there's not many of them they there are more dangers in the world in the form of others so we make practitioners and they're meant to sort of police things and make it a bit safer for humans. Mm. And that idea makes sense then. And then now humanity spread across the globe, kind of taken it over. There's millions of us and the practitioners have kind of grown and turned that into oppression of the others because there's more of them, like there's this sort of less dangerous others. So the, the line of what is, you know, something that needs to be challenged has shifted. And it's just like, you know, I guess the point that's sort of being made here is we developed this system a very long time ago when it made more sense, but the world has changed and maybe it doesn't make so much sense anymore. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's sort of, again, where I'm tying it a bit to BLM and Mm -hmm. just like, you know, I guess this whole idea of like, you know, I feel like some of the others and practitioners in this story are saying, hey, maybe it's ridiculous to build our whole world around uh, some agreement written by a guy thousands of years ago. Yeah. Uh, maybe there are other sis- systems that have been proven to work. Maybe we don't have to hold ourselves to systems that were designed, not even necessarily in good faith, hundreds of years ago, right? Yeah, just because some guys wrote a constitution that made sense to them 250 years ago and worked back then doesn't mean you need to treat it as gospel today. Yeah, and even the phrase it worked back then not necessarily true, right? Like No, yeah, like Lucy brings that it, up. It's like, well, that it, was written by them. Yeah, it worked for the people who it benefited, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I don't even know what Corbin is arguing for. Like, have you ever had this it's a conversation where someone's saying arguments that are like very dog whistle type arguments, right? And you know if you push them on saying okay what are you actually trying to say what is the point you're trying to make if you ask that question enough eventually they have to either give up or drop some genuine racist nugget and you're like you just know that's that's the seed and if you keep pushing you'll get there but god it's so exhausting (laughs) yeah and i think that's why lucy just checks out she's like she does she says it she's like we have more immediate concerns and i'll sort this shit staying out later but for now i just need to leave like so we can yeah do what's important right now yeah um but yeah uh yeah like so i guess to go back just like because obviously i've just sort of compared 
the seal of Solomon to the US Constitution, I brought up BLM. Like, I want to, there was a discussion on the Power Humans Discord that I just want to sort of bring up because I feel like it was really Im important to understanding some of the disagreements people have had with, um, like, the idea of practitioner oppression or comparing others to, like, certain disenfranchised groups. Like, I think, mm. it, like, to say that the others in the story are a straight up metaphor for, like, a a specific minority or something like i don't think is what the story is doing i think yeah like to say goblins are oppressed is not saying oh goblins are like the equivalent of x minority it, yes. it's saying like the way that we group goblins and otherize them and treat them terribly is similar to how we can warp our own perceptions and otherize like groups yeah that, you know we don't like necessarily know enough about yeah it's it's definitely I don't think it's as uh, specific as trying to make a point about one, you know, you made allusion to BLM and, and I think the parallels are there, but uh, because obviously yep. this is a contemporary work, but I don't think it's specifically we're talking about uh, African-American oppression or, or anything like that. I think it's, it is more general that and talking about kind of power systems as a whole and giving, you know, as Wabo wants to do, uh, is wants to do, giving multiple different examples of the ways that these power systems can interact and play off of different situations and and the kind of narrative and, and emotional impacts that they can have right yeah like i think blm was the example i go for because we're doing this podcast in 2020 and it's yeah, just of course. the example that's on our minds there's probably a dozen other like historical movements that you could tie this exact situation to like it's not it's not specifically like tying to one group it's sort of making statements broadly about like how humans can treat other groups of people when they otherize them that's why they're called others i mean yeah exactly they are <laughs> otherized they're literally yeah. otherized. um yeah cool uh Sorry, so yeah, just just wanted to clarify that like, yeah, after making yeah. it making a distinct comparison i do want to say but that doesn't mean that that's what i or the story am saying it is it's just a comparison to highlight what it's saying mm. um yeah, so uh, Lucy uh, extracts herself from this conversation and the gang all take stock, talking about who's on their side, where they all stand, kind of figuring it out, basically. Uh, yes, and the Kenneteers are really sticking to their, like, Lucy definition of neutrality here that I love, which is, because um, it, well, it's kind of every time they're sort of like, okay, yeah, let's go stick it to Bristow. Uh, other people the room are like, yeah, and we'll wait for Alexander to come back and put him back in power. And like Avery and Verona keep having to be like, no, fuck him as well. <laughs> He's done fucking nothing for any of us. Mm. Um, like we owe him nothing. He keeps fucking making us do all the work for him. He does nothing. If if we're gonna take this school back, then like we're not just gonna put him back in charge. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm with it. Um, we will touch on the alternate proposal. I guess let's talk about it now. Verona raises the idea of Ray being the headmaster, and she makes a point that's like, <laughs> oh, he might be good specifically because he doesn't want it, which I'm totally all for, uh, but just not for Ray. He's just yeah. not a good candidate for it. Like, he yeah, would be close, so hands-off. Close off. but no cigar, I think, Yeah, like, with yeah. Ray. It's like, I, I, I agree with your logic of let's pick someone who doesn't want it, but Ray's not your man. No, yeah. Ray would just be hands-off enough that it would be basically his second-in-command that's in charge effectively, and we're just back to square one then now, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, like Ray, as Lucy brought up when she met him, like Ray doesn't even have his own shit together. You can't put him in charge of the school. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, yeah, yeah. He's uh, not a good candidate, let's just say. Yeah, and like honestly, the only other teacher that springs to mind is Durashay, and she's like probably not a great choice either. I feel like she'd be better. I feel like she's an improvement at least, whereas Ray, I think, is not an improvement on Alexander. I, I guess. I just think she would, she would almost neglect the position. Yeah, maybe or, you're right. Like she, she's not a people person, kind of explicitly not a people person. She, mm. she finds the most non-people persons she can to hang out with. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's not a human that should be in charge maybe another should be in charge of the bhi yeah, miss in charge fuck like it'd be great. yeah uh, although that would be all binding lessons cancelled <laughs> <laughs> i mean but that's not the worst thing in the world right i don't know um field trip to the to the forest ribbon trail everyone yeah let's learn um, what it means to be another <laughs> yeah uh, so one of the other things that comes up in this conversation is um like how they're sort of talking about all the stuff Bristow's going to do. And one thing they point out is like, if two people get in a fight, they both get expelled, but then Bristow as the kind of acting headmaster has the jurisdiction to invite the ones on his side back. Yeah. So we're really just establishing, like in case you had any doubts, the, the rules that are holding the cooperation of this school together are just bullshit. Mm. Like, because what you can do is break those rules, but if you do it, for the right side then you get like a presidential pardon and 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 you just get let back in and there's no consequences really um it's like whatever legitimacy the rules of this school had they're like i mean they mean nothing by now yeah um yeah it's nothing right like <laughs> the fact that two people get in a fight knowing that they can do that basically with impunity because of the person who's not on Team Bristow won't be allowed back. The person who is on Team Bristow will get a pardon and come back. Like it's, yeah, it is bullshit for sure. Yeah, like I, I think what we're just seeing here is just like the the concept of this school is is really the victim here. Like it's, I, I feel like you know we're going to have a bunch of these other students like the Corbins being like, oh, we just need to get Bristow out and then things can go back to normal because they were fine before and. It's it's going to be people like the Kedateers being like, no, don't you see? It was just broken the whole fucking time. Like, mm. if, if these loopholes existed in the system, like we need to fix them. Mm. Yep. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it really doesn't seem like the people who are signing up for Team Bristow or Team Alexander, really anyone except the Kedateers, has a idea that there's a bigger picture here. Yeah. It's why I can't wait to get onto the three Oni practitioners and see what their deal is. Like, yeah. where do they stand on all this? Yeah. They're definitely going to be, hopefully, advocates for shaking up the system more fundamentally. <laughs> you, you'd, you'd think so, based on the fact that they're Oni practitioners. I guess we'll see. Yeah. Um, uh, one last thing from here as well. So the Kennedys have this moment with uh, Melody, where they convince her to go and make up with Layla after Layla did, you know, that little curse on her. Mm. no big deal um but like because i i wanted to bring it up because i think melody makes a fairly good point that she doesn't feel like she should have to approach layla like layla's the one who did wrong mm. um we have no evidence at this point that melody actually did anything wrong mm. um so i don't think i don't think melody is incorrect to say uh i feel like layla should approach me but the, the kennedy sort of say hey listen we need to 
be the bigger people. We need to mend these bridges. Like, we need to be better. If that means you have to do this, like, if you're willing to, I think it's a good idea. Mm. And I kind of like that sentiment. Being, needing to be the bigger people. Yeah, or being willing to. Like, you know, if Melody goes up there and she's like, hey, about what happened, and was like, it's your fault, then I'd be totally behind Melody being like, fuck you, and, like, you know, running off. Mm. But if her taking that first step leads to the bridge being mended, mm. um, and she's willing to make that step, like, you know, if things weren't bad enough that it prevented her from doing it, like, you know, I think it's probably a good idea to have someone push you to do it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, it's obviously not always going to be the case. If Layla had genuinely cursed her or done something terrible, then I, I wouldn't be saying this, but, like, I think they're in that wiggle room where Melody's maybe willing to consider it, and that's that's where it might be good advice. Mm. Fair enough. Um, so here's my favourite part of the chapter. Uh, the <laughs> Kennedys decide that they are probably going to need help, and they decide, let's call in some some folks from Kennet. And first up, John, who they summon in. And I'm so glad he's back. I love John. <laughs> he's, he's the best. He's just so good, isn't he? Mm. Um, I love how he's like immediately useful. Like he just spawns in. He's like, yeah, there's augurs watching us because the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up and I can't hear like bird song. Mm. And like the Kennedy is like, oh shit, you're right. Like, you know, all the background noises disappeared. That's a good thing to know that augurs have that effect. Like, Again, just the versatility of the Kennet others is so powerful. Like, I don't think anything in the textbooks would have led us to believe that John would have anti-orga lessons to teach, but he does. Mm. Yeah. Um, God, it's so good. They're, I love the little tips and tricks that they get from the Kennet others because it feels so weirdly attuned to the world, right? Like, all the tricks mm. that they get from practitioner school is like, Here's how to dominate this to your will or bend the universe to serve you. Whereas John's tip here is listen to the world around you and you can get hints on whether you're being spider, right? Like, yeah, it's awesome. I love that vibe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it, it, it's so great. And it's just something, yeah, that like I didn't see coming, but it's like, like I love how useful the Kennet others are. They have all of these useful things that go beyond their stand things. Like to jump ahead a bit, like, you know, Toad Swallow coming here helps get liberty on on side more and you know like on paper you don't bring the goblins in to strengthen your alliance you bring the goblins in to fucking so chaos um but the Kennet others are, are more than just their labels and, and so like they have all these added benefits mm. like they bring more to the table than their category implies yeah yeah definitely um also, because... Snowdrop finally makes an appearance. I feel like she's been out of the story for a bit, and it's beautiful. <laughs> yep, good to have her come back, rear her head again, for sure. Um, so, uh, it's not just John though. They decide they'll need more help, and so next up, we have uh, the goblins, who are kind of birthed <laughs> through a puddle of mud. <laughs> yeah, Verona has to reach in, uh, in Toadsaw's case, like, into his intestines, Uh I, yeah, I mean, this is fucking gross. It's so goblin. I loved it. It's weird, isn't it? I love it. It's just like, <laughs> it's just giving, like, yanking these goblins out through the mud like you're giving birth. And they kind of intentionally <laughs> are shitty about it. Like, <laughs> oh. like, like that's goblins' things, right? They, they, like, oh, they, they kind of have to be difficult about everything. And you sort of see that here, like, you know, 
Toad Swallow makes Verona lift him by his like fucking stomach, um, internally, like yeah. his stomach, and she's and like, Verona's "Why did like, you do that?" Yeah, and he basically and is just, like, just like goblin. Ooh, I'm a goblin. <laughs> Yeah, he basically says, I thought it'd be funny if you had to do that. And it's like, well, <sighs> yes, you're correct. That was hilarious. Yeah. Um, but also, it's so unnecessarily difficult. Um, I, I also love the bit, like, when, when they summon uh, Nat, she, like, she pops out and it's like, she snarls viciously and Toadswallow yells at her, be good. And then she, like, pauses for a second and then snarls conversationally is how Verona describes it. Mm-hmm. Which is just like, what does a conversational snarl sound like to you? Mm. Mm. Good question. I don't know. I don't think it's possible. <laughs> exactly. Like, I, I fucking love the goblins. Yeah. Um, I want to call out this interaction between Toad Swallow and John. Where Toad Swallow is like, basically tells him that he prefers John when he's not as tense and is more fatty and fleshy and jiggles, which is ridiculous. But also gives us a good sense of John being tense, which is a fun beat to set for John being, I mean, he's a tense kind of guy, but more tense than usual because he's around practitioners and shit's popping off. Like, I don't know. I hope nothing bad happens to John. We'll see. Oh, I, I don't think I could handle it if something bad happened to John. Because he calls it out. They're like, oh, you can go. This is stressful. And he's like, no, even if something happens to me, if I can protect you when it happens, like it's worth it. And I'm just like, I'm, everyone here is too good. It, I can't handle something bad happening. Mm. we'll see i also can't imagine <laughs> um and and so um sorry uh yeah and and so i also want to talk about like the kennedys sort of have a three-pronged approach to the others that they're getting for help mm. uh they've got physical defense in the form of john mm. uh they've got immaterial defense in the form of alpi with special guest tash that we'll get to yes um and then you have the goblins, who I guess as the third prong are just the general fuck shit up, like wild make cards. it, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, live up to our wild practitioner name and yep. uh, summon. Like it's just such a hilarious third thing. Like you get this, like yes, we're protected against the material and the immaterial, and then our the third part of our stratagem is just send little chaos gremlins at them to fuck their shit up, um, so that they're just not stable. Like, it's so great. I can't wait to see all three arms of this defense uh, get used. I'm excited to see it. It's going to be great. Ah, good times. Um, So, yeah, uh, of course, we have Alpi, but the main person that we want to see, Verona's new BFF, is Tashlet, who is here too, which is good stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, Tashlet and Verona is just a friendship. I think everyone is, like, immediately standing uh, after this chapter. Like, it was so fucking adorable, the way, like, Verona's excited to see it. They just have the best interaction. Um, I love how, like, everyone is giving Tash this fucking wide berth, and Verona just, like, goes up and starts high-fiving her. Mm. <laughs> Their BFF relationship is so much fun. It really is just a, a bright light of joy, right? Yeah, well, and because I think, like, this has always been Verona's superpower, is, like, she doesn't judge people based on external characteristics like Mm. you know right since we met her meat monster friends uh in her site like her ability has just always been to accept people for who they are like like regardless of what they look like and like judge them based on their actions and it's like she like gets on with tashlet because like she just treats tashlet normally and 
Ashlet's given her no reason not to, so she continues to do it. Mm. Yeah, why wouldn't you? <laughs> They're great. I love it. Um, I feel like, though, we get this little bit where Tashlet doesn't like cats, which feels like Wabo just making sure we can't feel safe in this friendship. Like, there has to yeah, be... there's got to be a little bit of concern there. <laughs> um, so I, I, I am going to choose to ignore it and think that Tash will just get over it. Um, but yeah, like, I do love how it's like, it, this friendship seems so fucking strong, so it's almost just like, well, burst it back. Okay, but don't get carried away. Like, they're not, like, you know, perfect for each other. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, or are they? We'll see. I'm sure they'll be great <laughs> friends. Nothing will go wrong. Don't worry about it. Ugh. I hate when things go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, ugh, okay. So yeah, uh, the group kind of converges, reunites, and heads to the school and prepares for the battle. Yeah, although I don't think it's going to be a battle battle. It's just going to be a series of in underhanded skirmishes. Nah, I want a, a um, big swooping shot, CGI, two crowds meeting on the field, <laughs> Lord of the Rings style. I mean, it would be nice if we could get it over that quickly, but I, I don't <laughs> think it's going to be that clean at all. No, yeah, I think it's not either. Um, and yeah, you know, this bit where they're walking to the school and they run into Ted, I love how Ted, who's just some dude, can like stand against all these magical people and creatures and, and win. Mm. Like, I want to believe in Ted so much, but he's just so fucking scary, and he seems to still be on Team Bristow. So, yeah, I mean, we'll see. Indeed we will. Um, yeah, Ted's creepy. Um, so, yeah, uh, two, I, I just want to discuss two quick reunions. First off, we get John and Bree, who have a small reunion. Uh, have they met? Maybe just a union? I don't know. It's tragic. John is very sad and makes me sad. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because obviously, like, he wants to see if Yolda's in there, and Brie is like, she is, but she can't really talk. And yep, yeah, I mean, because just this whole Yolda thing is is crushing, like, emotionally. Um, I, I mean, I think we talked about it when it was first revealed that it was like Yolda had been turned into the Hungry Choir, but that's just such a horrifying concept. Like, and you can imagine for John, he was forced to kill his one remaining like friend who he'd been protecting because she had a curse they couldn't get rid of. Mm. And then to have that fucking spat back at you. Cause it's like, Oh yes, she's alive and she's been turned by other people into a monster. And also she's right here, but you can't talk to her. Like that's <laughs> so fucking tragic. Oh, it's rough, isn't it? Oh, it's rough. Um, um yeah. Yeah. Very, God. very sad. You can see why he's so defensive of the Kenneteers. Yep. Um, but yeah, so we get another reunion, which is nicer. Uh, it's Liberty and Toad Swallow. What a weird, silly, delightful reunion that is. Um, yeah, I mean, she kisses him, which is fucking gross. Even Verona is like, that's gross. And you know, if yep. Verona thinks something's gross, it's fucking gross. Yep. Um, yeah, but it's it's an adorable little moment, isn't it? Like, it, it, it was one of those moments where it's like, of course the Ted's know Toad Solo. Like, fuck it, of course. Of course they would. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> we know Toad Solo has been used to teach youths about goblins, and of course the Ted's would have had to do that, presumably, what, 10 years ago, whatever. Um, mm. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's it. They march off to to battle. Uh, yeah. And and there's no extra material this week, as as we already said. Everybody gets a bit of a break, so uh, I guess that's the end of our uh, story coverage section. Yes, but now let's dive into some of our extra stuff. 
starting with some predictions that have been made by the community uh, in our Pale Predictor application. Shall we dive into it? Uh, do you have a prediction yes. that someone made that you want to pull out? Yes, uh, I have a prediction from Cal Subaloo, uh, who has latched onto that idea that goblins can turn into weapons and has suggested that Snowdrop's trusty rusty fork is actually cherry pop in weapon form. And um, it's this b- might be great. my favorite prediction that we've made. Yeah, it's so good. So good. This is exactly the kind of balance of like crazy tinfoil that's actually very believable that I was hoping we'd get through this system. <sighs> like, because we haven't heard from Cherry since they left, which I mean, you wouldn't because she's like a useless piece of shit. But yeah, like yeah, <laughs> I, I almost I, I'm almost gonna be shocked if this is wrong. Mm. <sighs> it's so good. Ah, <laughs> it's such a good prediction. I really, really love it. It's the kind of prediction. Yeah, you see it and you're just like, well, that's true. That's not even a prediction. <laughs> that's just somehow you know the truth. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I love this one so much. Um, but what have you brought? Um, I've brought a prediction by. User N86NHB67F. Um, you can't make it easy for us. Can I you? know, right? So this <laughs> prediction, uh, I loved because it's... Uh, let me read it out. They're basically talking about how they think Mist has a strong connection to the Oni Wars and that they they basically... Kennet is their V2 at, at making a system like this. And I think this is great because this prediction was made a month ago, Elliot. And I just wanted to pull it out because it's... Wow. So before we had any of these really overt links in the story, this person was like, yep, the only wars are going to be like another Kennet and Mrs. Involved because that's the link and, and Kennet is V2 of whatever was um, kicked off the only wars. Um, I, I, I just think great work N86NHB67F because it's so <laughs> on point. I love it. I, I, I don't yeah. know if it'll be fully true that Miss was directly involved in the only wars, but I think it'll be great. Yeah, because they, they sort of bring up, and they're right, that's like, all we knew back then was the only fought a war against the practice or something. Like, we didn't know what that meant. Mm. Uh, so it's a very good pick that, like, you know, we've obviously just spent a huge chunk of today's episode talking about how that relates to Kennet, and uh, this user had picked that up pretty early on. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great prediction. Both great predictions this week. Loved them. Yeah. Uh, if you want to leave a prediction, the link to our Pale Predictor uh, form is in the show notes down below. So find it there and leave us a prediction, and it might get read out on the show if we like it. Yeah, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit right now to adding a new category to that by the time this episode's out. Uh, I'm going to add a how will the Blue Heron Institute conflict end Ooh, category. Ooh, I do so, like this. Yeah, uh, cool. Get predictions in on, on how you think this war uh, over the school is going to end. Cool, yeah. Um, in the meantime, uh, we also had a discussion question uh, from last week, which was pick a monster or creature from any piece of fiction and explain how you might bind it in pale. And we got a lot of great answers, as we always tend to do with these more creative writing type questions. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, what answer do you want to pull out first, Ruben? Uh, I want to pull out what was my favorite one? I mean, they were all so good. Okay, let's start yeah. with this one uh, from a user called T. Sarwat. Uh, who <laughs> gave two, and I'm going to talk about the first one here, which was they wanted to bind or talk about how you would bind Wild Bow. And this was just a great answer, absolutely packed full of memes. Um, I'm going to read out a segment that I really loved 
uh, my favorite answer from any of these discussion questions, my favorite line from the discussion questions. The entire binding would be monochromatic, with white empty space and black markings. This counters ambiguous amb- ambiguous morality, ambiguous interpretation, and general ambiguousness. This is great. <laughs> no allocation of gray morality or anything. Everything is black and white and very, very obvious. And that obviously is the antithesis of Walpole. <laughs> I love this answer. So full of memes. It was great. 10 out of 10, Tissa White. Uh, yeah, and then and then they had like a, a more serious sort of follow up, didn't they? Uh, yes. So they also talked about uh, binding the summoning dark, which is a, a thing from Discworld, which I, I had never encountered in Discworld before. But th- this was a much more straightforward and good like literary <laughs> breakdown. But I just loved the meme <laughs> answer of Wardbo. <laughs> uh, good times. Um, yeah, I I I've also pulled out the answer from Landis nine six three, who. Who uh, are these creatures from Destiny called? Oh boy, here we go. Uh, Ahamkaras. I just realized I've never tried to say that out loud before. Um, and the uh, Ahamkaras uh, take their form based on the desires of those who they're like looking at. Mm. Um, and so, like a reverse Bogart, I, I kind of yeah. pictured it as. Yeah. Um, and so basically one of the things that you can sort of do is like make them look at their own reflection to reveal what they're actually sort of thinking um and landis turned this around into like part of a positive binding where you're sort of saying if they're associated with desires like i think they they also grant wishes or something so they're very desire associated so it's like surrounding them with mirrors so they have to look at themselves is forcing their own concepts of desire on them and then um Landis listed a bunch of like desire-related objects you can include, like money. Um, uh, I assume they probably said a PS5 because that's what everybody wants these days. Um, and yeah, then you sort of you know use those to create a positive binding that focuses on this thing's own desires as much as the concept of desire, which was the spin I really liked. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I yeah, good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I also love the one from Bavarian Barbarian, who mm-hmm. did Pennywise from It, um, mostly because my favorite part of this was uh, Bavarian Barbarian basically opens the answer by talking about how to use like kids as bait to get Pennywise to come out, which was like 10 out of 10. That's a very practitionary way of approaching the problem. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Ch- children as bait, 100%. Um, it started with like, you need to get a bunch of children and put them in danger. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, yeah, I, I really liked, I guess, I don't know if this is like spoilers if you're enjoying the the Kingslinger podcast or, or diving into Stephen King stuff. Maybe this is spoilers, but um, it's scared of turtles, apparently. So. Mm. You can throw, you know, green shells at it, like in Mario Kart, and that'll take care of it. <laughs> I thought that was quite good. Yeah, yeah. Um, we got a bunch of answers from Beard of Valor. Yeah, Beard um, of Valor went ham on these, hey. <laughs> uh, I really liked the one on Ridley from Metroid, mostly because it was one of the few examples uh, from from all these answers that I'd actually heard of before coming into the answer. Yeah. Um, it, there's a lot here. Like, this one's quite hard to summarize, but it was it was really in-depth. And, and fun so go check it out as Peter Val kind of talks about how you would tame like a fire breathing semi-mechanical cyborg dragon yep um Peter Vella also did two that I really liked because they were 
apart from these two, no one else did like, well, and I guess Wabo from Tiso What. No one did humans. Like, how do you bind a human, <laughs> right? And um, Beardavella talked about Harry Potter from obviously Harry Potter and Lyra, the protagonist of the His Dark Materials trilogy. And I, I liked both of these because it was diving into it in a way that's how do you, obviously humans are humans. They don't necessarily have like really strong thematic links, but these characters that are protagonists from stories do have these kinds of very overt themes and flaws and weaknesses and strengths and, and all that stuff. And I thought that made for really interesting bindings because you're thinking about like, what are the behaviors of this character that would allow you to trap them or trick them? Uh, the Lyra one I really loved, the Harry Potter one, pretty simple. All you need to do is do some very basic trickery with putting a fake coin in front of a manhole and then fall down it because Harry Potter's <laughs> a fucking idiot. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought these were great answers. Yeah, and honestly, I, I feel like that is a bit of a statement, uh, again, on the way that the people in this story treat the others. This mm, is like, yes. Like, as you said, when we know these main characters from the books, they have their own themes and imagery that you can tie into. And that's probably true of most people. You just need to know them. And the thing about others is because of the way the world treats them, there's a lot of this imagery that's assumed by default. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, and the, the last answer I wanted to call out uh, was from Stuck in Reddit Factory, who, mm-hmm. uh, surprising no one uh, who knows them, uh, chose the worst Pokemon, Charmander. <laughs> okay, um, whatever. I, I don't know how many times I have to have this argument with Stuck in Reddit Factory, but mm-hmm. Charmander is a trash Pokemon. Okay. And uh, I would just like to make clear that these are the opinions of Elliot specifically and don't <laughs> represent the opinions of Power Reflections as a show. Charmander's an okay Pokemon. It's middle tier. All right? It's fine. Whatever. Uh, yeah, this Obviously, this is an ongoing feud uh, stuck in Reddit Factory and I have been having on our Discord. Um, but I do have to say, this is a very, like, this was a very fun write-up. I think the way Stuck in, Federa- stuck in Reddit Factory wrote this up was very good. Like, they use academic references to Pokemon Snap uh, when they're talking about, like, the sociological behaviors of Charmander <laughs> groups and stuff. Um, there's references to what sort of PPE you need to wear. Like, it, yeah, it, definitely worth going and finding and reading. Uh, it's a very fun answer, mm. despite being about Charmander. Um, yeah, it was good stuff. Uh, yeah, I liked it. Uh, interestingly, Stuck in Red Factory didn't comment on the in-universe way that you bind Pokemon, which is by catching them in a ball, presumably would be <laughs> some part of the binding. Uh, but yeah. I mean, well, we got we got that person in, uh, was it the implement text, who binds others in cards like basically had pokemon card or Yu-Gi-Oh card Yu-Gi-Oh cards was the vibe yeah yeah true yeah true so is there some is there somebody out there like binding I, Charmanders I don't know po- into their foil whatevers yeah or like because there was that monster collecting game that the the kenneteers gave john in arc mm. two mm. so you know whatever it, that game's equivalent of a pokeball is is there some mm. practitioner out there who fucking you know makes little prop pokeballs and then makes them real yeah yeah, maybe. I don't know. Be a cool specialty for a practitioner. I suppose you just make master balls. You wouldn't bother making pokeballs. Yeah, why would you make ones that have less success rate? <laughs> Although, potentially, if you only make one master ball, you can then imbue it with, like, mm. this is the really, really special one, so it has a much better chance of working, you know? Yeah, you're right. You wouldn't want to dilute. Like, it probably costs a lot of power. You put it in, and then you go and find a god, and you capture an actual god with it. Yes, and then you can do anything you want. Although in Pokemon, they never really do. You catch Arceus and you're just like, all right, I'll use you to go, you know, 
beat this guy from my hometown, not like yeah. re rejig the world in my image, whatever. Fix. I could fix world hunger, or we could go fight yeah. that kid who bullied me when yeah, I was exactly. eleven. Or I could go home and spend the night with my mum, and then go ride a bike through a, a tall grass and use you to what squish some bugs that I see. Put, put you in daycare. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, oh, Pokemon! What a silly franchise. Anyway, I mean, that... enough about our enough about our pale Kibon fanfic. Yeah, uh, I think that's I think that's everything. Yeah, that's the end of our episode, the last episode of Cutting Class. Thanks for joining us for it. Um, if you want to leave uh, your thoughts or your predictions, you can do so by going to our Pale Predictor form. There's a link below. Or if you just want to leave your thoughts on the episode or this show in general you can do so by going to our discussion threads, which, again, are linked in the show notes. Uh, yes. Uh, we also have a Twitter, which is where the live reads happen, and also where you can get updates on, like, episodes being late, like this one was. Uh, <laughs> so it's the place to stay up to date on things um, by the time this episode's out. So if you're listening to this, I probably just finished my live read of 7.2. Or if you're behind, I, I probably finished it a long time ago. If you were thinking, hey, how come this episode was late? My response to that is, go on the Twitter, and then you'll know. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, if you want more from the Doof Media Network, you can go to doofmedia.com, where you can find all of the great shows on the Doof Media Network. What's your favorite Doof show at the moment, Elliot? Uh, it is eternally what you say. I know, right. Uh, obviously. Uh, I feel bad, because that's always the answer, but it's just such a fun <laughs> show. <laughs> Um, I, I am, though, uh, perhaps selfishly, uh, very excited for next week's Game Club. Uh, mm. So about a week after this comes out, uh, we'll be meeting with the Game Club to talk about Dark Souls, which you and I have both played for the first time uh, this month. Yep. And yeah. um, that's I think that's going to be, a, hopefully, well, it's either going to be really good or really bad. So either way, I think watching. it'll be a great discussion because it's definitely had a lot of interesting things like it's been the mo the game that we have within the discord had the most discussion on and i think it's going to be a great show as a result it's such a mixed bag it's going to be really fun to dive into this with everyone it's, yeah. it's a game that i think somebody could make the argument that it was either the best game ever or the worst game ever and i'd have to be like you know what i can see why you think that <laughs> i can agree with your points you know what's weird? I think I'm going to be doing both. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, if you want to check that out, obviously check out the Game Club next week. Uh, if you want access to the Discord where you can talk about games as they're in progress, you can get access to that by going to the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash doofmedia. At the lowest Patreon level, really a steal, you can uh, get access to the Discord. Yeah, you also get to vote in things like the Game Club and the Book Club, so you yes. can decide what game and book everyone gets to talk about. Um, yeah. It's it's a great perk. Uh, and speaking of Patreons, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash Wildbo uh, because, you know, he, he wrote this story and apparently some of our users are, or, and listeners are trying to bind him. So, you know, you've got to throw him money so he can defend himself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Go do it. <laughs> and I guess that's the end of the show. So we'll see you next time. Pew pew.